It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. At one time, Bill Browder was the largest foreign investor in Russia. Now he's one of Russian President Vladimir Putin's biggest critics. Browder, who was singled out by Putin after a private meeting with President Trump, says he's confused by the U.S. relationship with Russia. Trump's Russia policy is tougher than President Obama's. The Trump administration imposed sanctions on seven of the richest oligarchs in Russia, which is, some, which is like a neutron bomb going off. On one hand, his administration is extremely tough on Russia. On the other hand, I mean, <laughs> the words coming out of his mouth and the body language in Helsinki. Trump's actions indicate admiration for the Russian leader, says Browder. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held July 27th in Aspen, Colorado, as part of the Resnick Aspen Action Forum. Browder's history with Russia is deep and tragic. He was arrested, then expelled from Russia in 2005. Russian authorities seized documents from his office, he says, so he hired a lawyer, Sergei Meninsky, to look into it. Meninsky was tortured and eventually killed, says Browder. Seeking justice, he lobbied for the Meninsky Act that President Obama signed into law in 2012. The law, thinks Browder, is partly why Putin called him out at the highly scrutinized press conference in Helsinki, Finland. In this clip from MSNBC, Putin is standing next to President Trump. For instance, we can bring up the Mr. Mr. Browder in this particular case. Business associates of Mr. Browder have earned over one and a half billion dollars in Russia. They never paid any taxes. Browder sat down with CNN anchor Suzanne Malveaux in late July to discuss the Helsinki summit, the notorious Trump Tower meeting, and why Browder says he's not afraid of Putin. Both Browder and Malveaux are Henry Crown Fellows at the Aspen Institute. Here's Malveaux. I want to thank you, first of all, because we know that this comes at a risk to you for your security and your situation here, so we appreciate your time. Uh, we have 30 minutes. I know that there's been a lot of breaking news that regards you and your life will have a great impact over the last 24 hours. We want to, first of all, deal with that and get your impression. Uh, Trump's lawyer, his former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, uh, is now saying that Trump was aware and approved this meeting at the Trump Tower in June of 2016 with Russian officials, a Russian lawyer, as well as his son, Don Jr., his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his campaign manager, Paul Manafort, to receive what was supposed to be dirt on Hillary Clinton, but in reality really was that Russian lawyer who wanted to come after you and repeal the Meninsky Act. How, how does this play out in your life, in your world, this development today? Well, so, so um, there's been a lot of descriptions of this, of this meeting. Um, the, the spin coming out of the White House was the meeting was about adoptions. It had nothing to do with adoptions. It was a, the meeting was about a Russian lawyer, Natalia Veselnitskaya, along with a, a crew of her people meeting with the son and son-in-law and, and campaign manager of the possible next president of the, of the United States to ask for the Magnitsky Act, this piece of legislation that I was responsible for to be repealed, and to ask if he gets elected, could he have the Department of Justice arrest me and send me back to Russia? So that, that's, what, that, that's what the Trump Tower meeting was all about. And there's been a lot of toing and froing, and um, I, I follow all the toing and froing, probably most of you don't. 
But the, um, at first, it took a while for everybody to admit that that's what it was about, but they have admitted it. All eight people in depositions have admitted it. There's been some question about whether Donald Trump knew about this meeting in advance, and, and he claimed he didn't know about it in advance, and his son, Donald Trump Jr., claimed he didn't know about it in advance. Now there's a, a, an alternative narrative of Michael Cohen saying he did. Now, it's not Michael Cohen who's actually saying it. It's someone saying that Michael Cohen is going to say it. So who, who knows? Uh, uh, and it, and it, it doesn't necessarily prove anything beyond the fact that people were lying in this meeting. The, the key question of this Trump Tower meeting was the Russians came in and asked for something, the repeal of the Magnitsky Act and my arrest. Um, but they, didn't, they obviously didn't come in empty-handed. They came in with some offer. And the key question is, what did they offer? And was it accepted? And that's the, that, that's the basis for the whole collusion investigation. And you are, uh, I mean, you are key to that in a, in a sense because they really want to get back at you. They want, the, clearly Putin wants his money and what we've seen develop over the last month or so is a real cozy relationship between Putin as, and, and Trump. And just today, we now have Putin returning the favor. They have the summit last week. He, Trump invites him to the White House. And now, today, Putin says, come on over to Moscow. What, what, what does this mean for you, that you have this cozy relationship? You're the one who Putin wants. Well, um, so it's, it's obviously not good. Um, <laughs> um, so, so um, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's also not clear. So if, if you look at the Trump administration's policy towards Russia, um, it's tougher than the Obama administration. So in April, the Trump administration imposed sanctions on seven of the richest oligarchs in Russia, which is, some, which is like a neutron bomb going off. No one has ever done that before. The Obama administration has supplied offensive weapons to Ukraine. And the US military has um, uh, evaporated uh, uh, 300 Russian mercenaries in Syria, literally evaporated using the most advanced uh, military technology um, and, and many other things. And so on one hand, his administration is extremely tough on Russia. On the other hand, I mean, <laughs> the words coming out of his mouth and the body language in Helsinki. I mean, let me just point, point out some, some, something here. Um, Donald Trump is the president of the United States. The president of the United States is the most powerful man in the free world. The United States, um, the, the economy of Russia is the same size as the economy of the state of New York. The military budget of Russia is 90% less than the military budget of the United States. It's about the same size as the UK. So the, the idea of having these two men sitting as equals in Helsinki was, was a bad idea to start out with. But to, 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 the, to, to add insult to injury, Putin showed up an hour late. He showed up an hour late. Then, after this whole thing was over, Trump invites him to Washington, and he says, yeah, no. And then, and, and then Trump says, well, I'll go to Moscow then. I mean, that's not how the most powerful man in the free world should be dealing with this, this malign character, Vladimir Putin. Let's talk about this, the Helsinki summit. It was historic, and the two men emerge after their, after their meeting, after their secret meeting, and you're, you're the name that comes up out of Putin's mouth, that there's this potential deal that they're actually discussing, that you would be turned over as well as the former US uh, Russian ambassador 
in exchange for Bob Mueller and the Russian investigation to go over and talk to the 12 Russians indicted for hacking the DNC during the, during the campaign. Uh, it's something that the president called uh, an incredible idea. Uh, what, what was your reaction when you heard this unfold at, globally that you were part of potentially this exchange, a deal here? Well, um, my, my, my first reaction was that um, Vladimir Putin was making this proposal to the wrong head of state. Um, I, although my accent is American, um, I emigrated to the UK 29 years ago, and I'm a, U a UK citizen. And so if, if Putin really wanted me handed over, he should have gone to Theresa May. And um, I think that Theresa May wouldn't have thought it was an incredible offer. Um, But, but I was not worried that I was going to be handed over. And I, let me point out, it wasn't just me. So there's 11 other people on the list. And I, I just want to say for, for everybody to know, who else? Um, uh, Why weren't you worried? I don't understand that. Well, I, I, I wasn't worried because um, the United States is a, a country with a rule of law. And the laws don't allow presidents to hand people over. It just doesn't happen. Um, I don't think the Justice Department um, would violate the law. And the courts, the Justice Department is, is um, beholden to the courts. And I, there's no judge that would hand me back to Vladimir Putin to be killed in Russia. It just wouldn't happen. And to be clear, who, who, who protects you? You are a British citizen. You relinquished your US citizenship. So what is the rule of law? Who, who is the entity, the country, or the, or the law that is protecting you from being handed over? So the British government protects me, and they do so robustly. Um, uh, so this, by the way, wasn't the first, um, this wasn't the first time this, what I call an indecent proposal, was um, put forward. The, the Russians have gone to the British government 12 times to ask for my extradition and for mutual legal assistance. And the British government didn't think it was an incredible offer, and they rejected it outright every single time right away, every, each 12 time. And so... The British government protects me, and there, there's, no chance, there, there, there's, no, there's no chance whatsoever that the British government will ever hand me over. And I don't believe there's any chance that, that in the, at the end of the day, the US government will hand me over either. But I, I do want to mention these 11 other people, because I think this is really important. Who were the 11 other people that Vladimir Putin wanted? Um, he wanted the US ambassador, Mike McFaul, the US ambassador to Russia. He wanted a guy named Kyle Parker. Kyle Parker is a congressional staff member who wrote the Magnitsky Act. Uh, he wanted a guy named Jonathan Weiner, who is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for uh, Law Enforcement and Narcotics, who conceived of the Magnitsky Act. He wanted David Kramer, the former head of Freedom House, and, the, and he was also a former uh, US official um, who lobbied with me for the Magnitsky Act. He wanted a guy named Robert Otto, who's a senior intelligence officer in the State Department, who checked all the data on the Magnitsky Act. And he wanted three, three members of the three special um, agents of the Department of Homeland Security who investigated money laundering connected to the Magnitsky crime in America. Um, so they, basically, Vladimir Putin is, is saying the equivalent of these 12 GRU agents who hacked the US election, they should, the US should hand over Bill Browder and all the people who got the Magnitsky Act passed in the United States because he hates it so much. And so, we, I mean, we know that Putin is going after you because he wants, he's lost a lot of money, an incredible amount of money. The Magnitsky Act is now a global phenomenon and that, that that's a price to pay. You, um, 
You started off, though, when you first, as a businessman, you started off praising Putin, and you felt like you could work with him. And I believe your philosophy was that there could be good practice, business practices in Russia. At what point did you realize that was no longer the case? Well, first of all, I should say I was wrong about Putin. Um, <laughs> and so when Putin first came into power, um, he was, he, he's this totally, he has no expression on his face, and so you could attribute anything you want to him. And when he first came into power, he wasn't as powerful as he is now. He was sort of president of the presidential administration of Russia, but not really president of Russia. All the oligarchs had seized the power from him. And I was fighting with the oligarchs who were uh, basically, I was an investor, I had an investment fund, and the oligarchs were stealing money hand over fist from all the companies that I had investments in. And so I started to expose the oligarchs, and Putin had just showed up as president, and the guy, same guys that were stealing power from him were stealing money from me, and so as I exposed them, he would take that as an opportunity to attack them. And so for a while, I thought, wow, this is great. What a great guy. He's helping me clean up Russia. And, uh, and he was. Did you really believe that? I really believe that. But, 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 but the, 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 here's where the story went, went, went wrong, was he wasn't really trying to clean up Russia. He just wanted to become the biggest oligarch himself. And so he arrested the biggest oligarch, a guy named Michael Hordakovsky. Many of you will remember that image of this oligarch being taken off his airplane, his private jet in Siberia. They put him on trial. They allow the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. And this, that did the trick. Every other oligarch um, set up a meeting with Putin and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in a cage? And he said, 50%. And that was the moment that Putin became the richest man in the world. And all of my activities then were no longer tolerated. And that's when he turned on me. And it was pretty obvious that, that um, I mean, it, it, there was never one moment in time when it became, that, that it was clear that he was a crook. It was sort of a, a sort of a declining confidence uh, thing in my own mind, but uh, he clearly wasn't the guy I thought he was when he first came to power. When you were arrested at the Moscow airport and held for 15 hours, I assume that you figured at that point, <laughs> this, this is a game changer. This is no longer, my life has changed. Well, I, I, so, I, so for those of you who don't know my story, in, in um, 2005, as I was flying back to Russia, I was the largest foreign investor in the country. I was stopped at the uh, VIP lounge of Sheremetyevo Airport. I was grabbed by four heavily armed um, uh, border guards, frog marched down to the detention center of the airport, and I wasn't sure whether I was being arrested or deported. And so I sat, sat up all night in the detention center, sort of pondering what I had done to get myself into this situation. And praying that I wasn't being arrested and sent to Siberia. And, um, and I was there, and I was, the, 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 if I was being deported, the, 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 um, the flight out to, back to London was at 11 a.m., and at about 9.45, I was banging on the bars, hoping that, that somebody would come and put me onto that flight, and they all ignored me. I thought, well, that's not good, and 10, 10 o'clock comes around, they're still ignoring me, and I'm, I'm, my, the adrenaline is starting to pump through my veins. 10.15, they're still not coming to get me. By 10.30, I was convinced that if they were going to put me on that flight, they, they would have to process me or whatever, that, that I wasn't going on that flight. Uh, still, still nothing at, at uh, 10.40. Um, at 10.47, they finally grab me and take me and frog march me back up to the Aeroflot flight and stick me, in a, stick me in the middle seat in economy, and I was so happy to be on that airplane, I can't even tell you. <laughs> economy. Uh, let's talk about your friend. Let's talk about that, that moment, uh, the lawyer, and, and what happened to him because that, uh, you write about it, you talk about it, you say that that was a turning point in your life, certainly a point of inflection. Well, after I was expelled from Russia, my offices were raided by the Russian authorities um, on June 4th, 2007. 
they seized all of our um, uh, corporate documents. And those documents were then used to steal our investment holding companies. The, the, basically, the police working with criminals did an identity theft of our investment holding companies. And I hired a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky. He was 35 years old. He was the smartest lawyer I knew in Russia. And um, he, could, he was the kind of guy who could do 10 things in the time it took others to do one. And I said, figure out what they're trying to do and stop it. And he went out and investigated. Um, and he came back and he said, um, they, they, uh, the purpose of this whole thing was to steal uh, $230 million of tax money that we had paid to the Russian government um, from the Russian government. And they had taken all of our documents and did this highly complex fraud of, of a, a tax refund fraud of $230 million. Sergei figured it out. He then exposed it. He testified against the officials involved. And five weeks after he testified against those officials, they arrested him, put him in pretrial detention, tortured him for 358 days, and killed him at the age of 37 on November 16, 2009. And I got the uh, news of his murder on the 17th of November at 7.25 AM. And that was the, the, the moment that changed my life. It was the most horrifying, traumatic, heartbreaking news I could have ever gotten. Uh, Sergei Magnitsky was killed as my proxy. He'd still be alive today if he hadn't been my lawyer. And um, after I was able to kind of put aside the hysteria and think clearly, I, I made a vow to his memory, to his family, and to myself that I was going to put aside all of my other activities and use all of my time, all of my resources, and all of my energy to go after the people that killed him and make them face justice. And, um, uh, and we eventually got some measure of justice with the Magnitsky Act. Why did you... It's Aspen Ideas to go. Thanks for listening. The gene editing tool CRISPR has the power to cure cancer and help alleviate world hunger, but it could also alter embryos to create, quote, better humans. Jennifer Doudna helped develop the technology and says we should be careful with it. She remembers a woman asking about designer babies. She said she herself wanted to have the first CRISPR baby and that she wanted to commercialize the technology, create a company that would offer this service to parents. You know, there's a whole commercial aspect to all of this that is um, something that I think people are, you know, we're all sort of grappling with. Find a link to the episode CRISPR, a crack in creation in our show notes. Listen to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. Now back to today's discussion. Here's Suzanne Malveaux. Why did you think that going to U.S. Congress was going to be a successful vehicle for either getting back at Putin or establishing human rights uh, for, for those around the world or for your friend? Out of all of the things that you could have done, why, why, why that vehicle and why do you suppose that succeeded? Well, it wasn't the first thing we did. The first thing I did was I went to the Russian authorities and Ser Sergei had actually written everything down that happened to him during his torture. He, everybody has their own way of dealing with adversity in, in prison. And Sergei's way of dealing with it was to write criminal complaints about who was torturing him, how they were doing it, when they were doing it, where they were doing it. Every month or so, he would give his, his lawyer a stack of these handwritten complaints who would file them. He filed 450 of them in his 358 days in detention. 
How is he able to do that, to get that to his lawyer? So uh, the, the Russians are quite, quite open about all these procedural things. He filed them, they ignored them or rejected them, but we got copies of them. And so, and they never expect that, that there'd be any consequence to this information anywhere. And, um, and but when he was killed, um, we, ha we had the most granular, detailed record of human rights abuses come out of Russia in the last 35 years. And so it, I thought we'd get justice in Russia. I mean, this was, not a, uh, this, was not, this was not a case that went under the radar. This was a major international incident. And I thought we'd get justice in Russia. But Vladimir Putin personally got involved. And I say personally. He personally exonerated every single, every single officer and government official who played a role in Sergei Magnitsky's false arrest, torture, and, and death. Um, they gave promotions and state honors to some of the people who were most complicit. And in the most shocking miscarriage of justice, Three years after they murdered Sergei Magnitsky, the Russian government put him on trial in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia, and me as his co-defendant, and found us both guilty. Um, they couldn't do anything more to him. They sentenced me to nine years in absentia in a Russian prison. It became obvious that there was no chance of justice inside of Russia. Then we looked for justice outside of Russia. And guess what? There are no international mechanisms of justice that exist. The International Criminal Court um, you have to come in with 100,000 murders, not one. Um, the European Court for Human Rights um, the, the, uh, uh, issues a judgment, gives the family $50,000, nobody goes to jail, nobody gets prosecuted. The, uh, they, they just write a, a nice note saying that Russia was bad to, your, to the person who was. Um, universal jurisdiction, which is a legal concept which is supposed to, to allow people to be prosecuted in, in other countries, doesn't really exist in practice. And so I said if there's no exist, if, if, if there's no mechanism for justice that exists, I'm going to invent one. And I, I said, the reason that they killed Sergei Magnitsky was for $230 million. They don't keep that money in Russia. They keep it in, in the West. They keep it in New York. They keep it in London. They keep it in Zurich. And so I went to Washington, and I sat down with Senator Benjamin Cardin, a Democrat from Maryland, Senator John still McCain. There. He's still there, yeah, still and there. he's still, still a good man. Senator John McCain, Republican from Arizona. And this is one thing that Democrats and Republicans could agree on in Washington, which is that Russian torturers and murderers shouldn't come to America and be able to use our banking system here. And this Magnitsky Act, as it was called, named after Sergei Magnitsky, went viral. I mean, it was there, there at the time, I say at the time, there was no Russian torture and murder lobby in Washington to fight against this. And, um, and it, when it went for vote in 2012, it passed the Senate 92 to 4 passed the House of Representatives with 89%, and was signed into law on December 14, 2012 by President Obama. And there are now 50 people who were involved in Sergei Magnitsky's false arrest, torture, and death who are on the US OFAC sanctions list. Um, and that's a devastating thing to be on. You basically become a non-person in the world um, when you're on the US sanctions list. Let's, One of the themes for the Globin, uh, Global Action uh, Network here the, is, is fearlessness and, and being a leader and de dealing with your fear. Um, your friend, Sergei, uh, he, you said, spent 358 days imprisoned. What do you think is your inflection point, perhaps your breaking point? What would you be willing to endure, whether it was imprisonment, or torture, or worse, to continue your fight for human rights against Putin? Well, I've been threatened with death. I think I, the, the last death threat I got was about three weeks ago. 
Um, uh, I've, I've received numerous death threats from, from, from Russia. I received a um, notification from the US uh, government that, that there was a uh, illegal rendition or kidnapping um, plot being organized. Um, the Russian government has um, tried to have me arrested um, on a number of different occasions. They've used Interpol. Uh, I, was, I was just arrested, actually, on May 30th in Madrid, Spain, on a Russian Interpol arrest warrant. Um, they make movies about me. They've, they've accused me of, uh, of multiple crimes. They've accused me of killing Sergei Magnitsky. They've accused me of serial killing. Um, as we saw with <laughs> Putin in Helsinki, um, they'd like to have me handed over by the US president. Um, how do I feel about all this? Um, well, it's, um, uh, I don't spend a lot of time, uh, I haven't changed my behavior because of it. Um, I don't live in fear. I take a lot of precautions, but I don't live in fear. The moment that I start living in fear, that's the moment they've already succeeded. And so the way I do it is um, uh, offense is the best defense, and I'm coming at them real hard. Um, and uh, one, one of the things we're doing is we're finding out where the money went, where the $230 million went. And, um, and that, that was Estonia. That, was, that, that is your, your new complaint for in, in Estonia. That's correct. Well, so we filed a complaint uh, in Estonia last uh, Last week, yeah, uh, or this week, I can't remember. Not this week. Um, we, um, we found where the money went. The money went to 26 different countries, and we filed uh, criminal complaints in every single one of those countries, and there are now 15 live law enforcement investigations going on around the world. And the noose is tightening, and it's not just the money from, from this crime. It's the money from all, it's the pipe that, that they use for all the crimes. And that's terrifying because all of a sudden you have very serious um, law enforcement from the Department of Justice, to the French prosecutors, the Swiss prosecutors, the Luxembourg prosecutors, the Spanish prosecutors all looking at this stuff. And the entire criminal network of Vladimir Putin is being exposed. And, and they're running in circles trying to figure out how to contain that. And it's not working. I wonder how this ends. I wonder how, how far this goes. Because you do say that you take some precautions, uh, that you don't live in fear. But what, what is the cost to, you know, the real cost? Because we are thinking as global leaders of stepping out of our comfort zone. Many people in this audience have already done so. But I imagine that there uh, is a price to pay to your family or um, your way of life. Or what are the values that, that keep you well, going? Well, I mean, um, when, when, when you fight evil, uh, evil fights back. And um, there's no question about that. The, um, the reason I do this is because Sergei Magnitsky was killed because of me. He was killed at the age of 37 because of me. And he was killed standing up for me in a much more precarious situation than I'm in. He was sitting in jail, in, in their custody, speaking out against them, testifying against them. Um, and he was killed. And I couldn't live with myself if I didn't go after these people. And I didn't get justice for Sergei Magnitsky. And so Sergei Magnitsky's... Um, Terrible, terrible sacrifice is what keeps me going, and, and um, I'm ready to keep on going. And I don't know how this ends, and I don't think about how it, this ends. All I think about is what I have to do tomorrow and what I have to do the day after tomorrow. And uh, I don't spend a lot of time speculating on it. And, and because it, it's all so unpredictable and so many things are moving around that um, it's just as unpredictable for them as it is for me. Did you have a, a model? Did you have somebody show you or demonstrate or inspire you to be like this? Or did this just come? No, this came out of moral outrage. Um, that nobody, nobody told me to be like this. In fact, every single person I knew, every single person I knew told me after Sergei was killed, just 
drift into the background, don't say a word, go away. Hopefully the whole thing goes away. Every single person I knew. Do we all have that in us, do you think? Look at me, do I look like some kind of superhero? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, someone wrote a profile on me a couple of years ago and, and said, um, uh, whoever plays Bill Browder in the movie um, you know, uh, is not gonna be Bill Browder because he's the last person who should play. play. <laughs> Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt, don't worry. <laughs> You know, I, I think that, you know, it's all based on values. And, and of course, we're among, you know, people who share, you know, uh, very strong values here. I mean, this is, this is a very uh, rarefied, selective group of people who, who do that. I think everybody has it in themselves here if something like this happened. Um, most people in the world don't. And I've seen a lot of really bad behavior. I mean, well, good behavior and bad behavior. The good behavior from people you wouldn't expect to be good and some really horrific bad behavior on people that you'd expect to be good. I had a lawyer. Um, a guy named John Moscow, um, funny name for, uh, for a lawyer. John Moscow was the first lawyer I hired in America to help me trace the money that was stolen so that we could go after the people who were involved in this crime. And John Moscow, um, he, worked for, he works for a firm called Baker Hostetler. And his firm, and he, after we, after we found the money in New York and we, and we d reported it to the Department of Justice and they opened up a criminal investigation, who shows up on the docket having switched sides? But my lawyer, John Moscow, he switched sides. Wow. Um, and, uh, and that's just one of the, I mean, I, I've got like 50 stories like that. I mean, some, and, and, and he switched sides for money. Um, and so there's a lot of people here that, that would do the right thing because it's the right thing to do and risk their lives. And there are a lot of people out there in the world who will do the absolute wrong thing for just a little bit of money. And, and, it's, and I've seen it up close and personal and it's very interesting pretty shocking and, um, and very illuminating. There's some people who would like you to tell your story. You've certainly testified before a US Congress on uh, various committees, uh, but to do so under oath and uh, in a US courtroom. Is that something that you would be willing to do as well? I have. I've, done, have. I've, done, I've testified under oath in, in a US court, in a Swiss court, in a British court, in a French court, in a Spanish court. I testify under oath wherever I'm asked to testify under oath. Let's talk a little bit about, because we're running out of time, your Henry Crown Fellowship. Where, where does that play into this? Because clearly, I mean, you, you talked about this as a project. This was the Henry Crown project that you were doing, how, how this started. <laughs> it didn't, didn't work out so well. <laughs> so uh, my, Henry Crown, Crown, my Henry Crown project was to um, figure out how to improve corporate governance and fight corporate corruption in Russia. Uh. <laughs> It either worked out very badly or very well, it seems. Well, you know. I mean, it, it's, it put me in the center of the, um, you know, the, the, the summit between the two most dangerous men in the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about your background because it's, it's fascinating, uh, your, your history. Your grandfather, I believe, uh, so he was a big communist uh, in, in the United States, and then there was a nanny that your family had for 40 years, and it turned out that she ended up being a Russian spy, spying on your, I mean, how did you've that, done, you've how done does your that homework. go? Wow, I'm impressed. <laughs> so so my, my grandfather was the general secretary of the American Communist Party from 1932 to 1945. I became a capitalist as a rebellion to that. <laughs> Stanford. The Stanford uh, Business School, um, University of Chicago Economics. Um, 
My, um, my grandfather came here with, with a, with a uh, nanny. We called her Nyanya. And, um, and uh, it's very interesting because my, one of my cousins is a historian at the University of Richmond. And she was going through some, some uh, archives. I think it was F, uh, maybe FBI or KGB archives and discovered that this woman who lived with us, this nanny who lived with, with not with us, but with my grandfather and various people, for 40 years was informing on him um, to the KGB. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> but I'm impressed that you found that detail. Um, there was something else I found interesting in your background, and, and you, perhaps <laughs> you can explain this to us. Um, but I believe you were, you were 34 years old, and when you renounced your US citizenship, that that was a a business decision is that, or how, how did that come about? And do you re regret that if you look back on that decision? So, so the reason for that was that um, my grandmother, um, my grandfather's wife, um, so my grandfather was a communist and he was persecuted um, during the McCarthy era. If you were the head of the communist party, you know, they're persecuting people who weren't communists, but he was the head of the communist party and they were persecuting him dramatically and he, was, he had to testify in front of the house subcommittee on un-American activities. There's like a stack of transcripts that go up to the ceiling from his testimonies. And they started going after my grandmother. And my grandmother was dying of cancer. And they wanted to deport her back to Russia while she was on her deathbed. And this is the same kind of stuff that's going on with separating children from parents and so on. And, and I, I had the opportunity to become British in 1998. And I thought about it and I said to myself that I think that Britain is a country with a rule of law that's, that's much more entrenched with a you know, solid thousand years of, of and, th and that kind of thing could never happen in Britain. And that was the basis for my decision to become British. And um, would I, do I feel like it's a good decision? Yeah, I, I, I've been living in Britain for 29 years. The British government protects me. The rules, the laws, the, the society is something that I'm proud to be part of. And, uh, I still have a lot of American in me. I, you can hear it in my voice. And I'm a lot of, I come here often, and I have a lot of friends here, but Britain is my home. I've noticed that recently you've become much more uh, visible, and that there are times, you've been in this fight for eight years now, but we, we've seen you, you've identified your location, we know where you are, uh, but we know that Russia has reach on British soil with uh, the, the nerve agents. We've seen, we've seen that impact before. Um, what is the reality of your life now? Well, um, probably my best protection is being visible. I mean, if Putin is bringing my name up at the Helsinki summit as a guy he wants to hand over, and then something happens to me, um, everybody know that Vladimir Putin will have done it. Would that prevent him from doing something? Yes, maybe, because Vladimir Putin is, is, a, is a guy who doesn't like consequences. He likes to get away with stuff. And if you look at everything he's done, they, they invade Crimea, it wasn't us. They shoot down an MH17, it wasn't us. They get caught cheating in Olympics, we didn't do it. He, 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 he doesn't like consequences. And, um, and so my hope is, you know, there's no way you can, you can protect yourself from Novichok on a door handle. What do you not touch door handles? That doesn't, that's not gonna work. Um, the only thing I can do is, is, is be out, out in the open and be very visible in this fight. And just, just to our audience, if you would, because this is a focus really about moving forward exhibiting fearless leadership. What do you have to offer to the audience today? <laughs> um, I'm not sure if I'm a role model or someone you want, or a, a person whose situation you want to avoid. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I guess the, the, um, the, the message, and, and this is something that people don't, uh, don't normally think is 
it, it doesn't come naturally to people, is that when, when this type of stuff happens, when really bad stuff happens, most people want to shrink into their core and not, um, they don't want to be in the newspaper, they don't want to have it written about, they don't want to talk about it. Um, what, I, what I've learned is that um, the more transparent, the more open, the more obvious you are about what's going on, um, the, more, the more it helps, protects, and brings along other people. I, I've got a whole army of supporters all over the world um, because they know about my story. And like when I was arrested in Madrid, I tweeted it out as I was being arrested. And by the time I got to the police station, Interpol had gotten probably 100 phone calls from journalists and other people. And, um, and within two hours, I was released um, because everybody knew about it. Um, and and it's not, it doesn't come naturally. No one feels comfortable being out, out in the open. But um, I think that for me, that's the best lesson of anything here. We appreciate you being here in the open. Thank you. We appreciate <laughs> Thank you so much. Bill Browder is an American-born businessman and longtime critic of the Kremlin. He co-founded the investment advisory firm Hermitage Capital Management, a company that worked with the largest foreign investment fund in Russia. Browder's project for the Institute's Henry Crown Fellowship focused on how to improve corporate governance and fight corruption in Russia. Suzanne Malveaux is an award-winning journalist who covers politics, national stories, and international news for CNN. Their conversation was held on July 27th at the Resnick Aspen Action Forum. It's an annual gathering in Aspen, Colorado of members from the Aspen Global Leadership Network. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Resnick Aspen Action Forum programming team is Tommy Loper, Olivia O'Neill, and Kid Dewey Solomon. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.